Hello, and welcome to the fourth in a series of podcast lectures, which focus on the thought and the work of a variety of different object relations thinkers. This specific podcast lecture is going to focus on the work of Donald Winnicott, and it follows uh, two other lectures that came before it. The first one was on the work of Melanie Klein. Melanie Klein was Donald Winnicott's supervisor, and she had an enormous impact on him, influence upon him. And the other one was the work of Ronald Fairburn, who had less of an impact on Winnicott than Klein did, but I think he still did have an impact on Winnicott's thought as well. Uh, so Winnicott, let's talk about him. He is a really interesting figure. I think he is a really interesting thinker. And one of the reasons that I say that is that I have read a lot of different things written by people who are psychoanalysts. I've read a lot of stuff by people who are not psychoanalysts, but they're writing about psychoanalysis. And Winnicott, the way that he writes is really of interest to me for two reasons. The first reason is that a lot of people who write about psychoanalysis write in a very stodgy, somewhat academic way. And Winnicott does do that sometimes, but the majority of the time he doesn't. The majority of the time he actually writes in a style that I think is rather readable for, for people, right? Even if people are, aren't super, super, super well-versed in psychoanalysis. Now he can and does occasionally churn out a paper which is for people who are psychoanalysts and it has jargon and stuff in it. But uh, a lot of the times he just doesn't do that. And even those papers that he does write in a very uh, academic way, where he utilizes to the fullest extent possible psychoanalytic vocabulary, those are still written in a, in a pretty straightforward way too, I think, right? Like there's there's some academic papers that are academic and really hard to read. And there's some academic papers, and you have to know the terminology, but they're readable, and Winnicott is definitely the latter. Another reason that I really like him is that he can be funny. He has a sense of humor, and sometimes that sense of humor works its way into his writing. I'm going to tell you a story. There's a paper he wrote on technique, I, I cannot recall the title actually right now. And I honestly can't even remember what he said about technique in the paper, but I can remember this one thing he did. I remember reading this paper and as I was reading it, I got to the end of a sentence and at the end of a sentence, there was a little number which indicated that there was a footnote. And I remember looking down at the bottom of the page and I found the footnote that corresponded with the number. And the footnote said in this paper about psychoanalytic technique, of course, none of this matters if the patient has brought a revolver. And that's all it said, right? It's like, what? Why would you put something like that as a footnote in this paper? And that was one of those papers that was like one of his serious papers. And that just, I think, shows how even when he was being serious, he kind of like had to crack a joke, get a joke in there. And I like that about him. I like that he didn't take himself too seriously. I like that he didn't take psychoanalysis too seriously. Uh, another quick story, anecdote about Winnicott being funny. I mentioned earlier that his supervisor was Melanie Klein. And Melanie Klein was German. Uh, she she had spent a lot of time in Germany. She, she spoke English very well, but she spoke it with an accent. And one of the times she was giving a lecture and she kept on saying inner chaos, but she would say it with an accent. So it sounded like in a chaos, in a chaos, right? And Melanie Klein was a, a very serious person. She took herself very seriously. She took psychoanalysis incredibly seriously. And she would speak very passionately. And as she was doing this, Winnicott was in the audience. And I guess he kept on like laughing, kept on chuckling. And afterwards, somebody approached him. And they're like, dude, 
Like, what were you laughing about? That was a Melanie Klein lecture. She's like the super serious person. If she sees you laughing, she's going to be really upset. She's going to be mad at you, dude. And she's a big deal. And when it got said, whenever she says inner chaos, you know, the way that she does in a cows, uh, I hear her saying inner cows and it just makes me laugh. I can't help it. Right. So again, he, here was this person who was presenting themselves as this very serious person. And uh, he found a way to turn it into a kind of funny thing. And I think that's kind of indicative of the way that Winnicott thought and the way that he practiced. He took psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and, you know, working with patients uh, very seriously. But even though he took it seriously, he could still, at the same time, inject that seriousness with a level of humor that I think changes it and makes it perhaps more approachable and easier for a, a lot of people. Another thing about him that just really ingratiated him to me is that he would say these wonderful, beautiful, poetic things. One of his books, a book called Playing in Reality, if you open it up and you turn to the dedication page, you will see that the book is dedicated to my patients who have paid to teach me. That is such a beautiful dedication, right? To, for, for somebody to put into a book. And this book is a big deal in psychoanalysis. It's like a, a very well-known, highly referenced text. And, you know, Winnicott said, this book wouldn't be possible if I didn't have patience. And I'm dedicating it to them. I think that that's great. Another thing that he said once, and I'm going to probably come back to this later on in this podcast lecture, he was referring to uh, different kinds of uh, patients who he had. And he said that for a lot of people, it was a joy to be hidden but a disaster to not be found. And I love that line because I think it it illustrates something that about our emotions, especially, right? If we take our emotions and we keep them hidden, then they can't be weaponized and used against us by anybody. But if nobody ever discovers that like emotional kind of childlike part of ourselves, isn't that really sad? And, and Winnicott just summed that up so beautifully. It's a joy to be hidden and a disaster to not be found. Last thing I'll say about him before I jump into his thinking and his work, and, and this is another thing that I really, really love about Winnicott, is that he was somebody who was not afraid to be an emotional man. And this is something which is, I think men struggle with now, but uh, I think they struggled with it even more back in Winnicott's time. We're talking like 1940s, 1950s England, being an emotional man was not something that a lot of people would advertise. But Winnicott kind of was. I, I would go so far as to, to say that Donald Winnicott reminds me a lot of the character Ted Lasso from the hit Apple TV show, Ted Lasso. He was a guy um, and he was emotional and he found a way to be an emotional guy that everybody found incredibly endearing and at times inspiring. Uh, he, he was just a, a really, I think, wonderful, warm-hearted, kind, generous person uh, who had emotions and rather than lock them up or keep them places where other people would not ever see them or experience them, he was able to to be emotional without you know being a, an emotional wreck. Uh, and I think that that's actually a really impressive, wonderful thing for anybody to pull off, right? And so that's a, a little bit of my commercial on Winnicott. Hopefully, I've interested you in the person uh, because in addition to being a wonderful person, an interesting person with an interesting life, you can, there's two different biographies of Winnicott out there. One was written by a guy named Rodman. It's a really long biography, but very good. 
There's a shorter biography written by Adam Phillips, also very good. You can read those if you want. But in addition to having an interesting life, Winnicott was also an incredible thinker who came up with some really, really amazing concepts. And after we go through a little bit of transition music, we're going to come back and we're going to start talking about a few of those concepts. Stay tuned. that before Winnicott was a psychoanalyst, before he was what we would think of as a mental health worker, he was a medical doctor and not just any kind of medical doctor. He was a pediatrician. He was the doctor that you brought your kids to. And that meant that he had a ton of experiences interacting with children and with children's parents, in particular their mothers. Because, you know, especially at the, the time that Winnicott was practicing, uh, the the idea of women going to work was not very common. The idea of men being the parent who stayed home to raise children, also extremely uncommon. And as a pediatrician, he ended up spending a lot of time uh, working with mothers and their, their children. As he went about his work as a pediatrician, he noticed a couple of things. And they're things that are kind of obvious, you know, if I, if I say them now, but they're really important to state very explicitly. The first thing is that when a baby is born, it is totally and completely 100% dependent on its mother for survival. An infant without a mother will not be able to survive. It cannot happen, right? Uh, infants need mothers to give it nourishment. Now, nowadays, we can use things like formula and and whatnot, and we can actually, somebody who is not a baby's biological mother can, in fact, use uh, our various technological advancements to keep a baby alive. And even in Winnicott's time, there was ways that a person who was not the biological mother of a child could keep the baby alive. Uh, So let's not get too bogged down in the specifics here. The point that Winnicott was making was more about the fact that children infants, human infants, are completely and totally dependent on somebody else, usually a mother, to continue to live. And if they do not have somebody in their lives who, upon whom they can be dependent and who will accept that dependency and see to the baby's needs, the baby just simply will not exist. It, it will die. Second thing, even though mothers and infants have separate bodies after the baby is born, Winnicott would say there was still this time where the mother and the baby were continued to be linked, continued to be connected in a very powerful and profound way. They, he thought that mothers and infants had this kind of emotional and mental bond that was unlike any other bond that human beings develop with anybody else, right? That there was this really special thing about that. Now that bond, one of the things that made it so unique was the fact that the baby was completely and totally 100% dependent upon the mother. And the mother was able, we hope anyways, to meet all of that infant's needs. And and that's not something that you experience, again, at different points in your life in different relationships. That's specific to the mother-baby kind of a thing. 
last thing here. Winnicott, well, he thought that this bond existed and he thought that it was incredibly important and very beautiful. He also knew that it was a bond that was temporary, that it could not last, and that at a certain point, the mother and the baby would need to begin a process of separation. Uh, He noted that the baby would need to stop depending upon the mother's capacities so that the baby could start to develop its own capacities. Uh, When I say capacities, I want to be a little bit more clear about what that might mean. Uh, So babies cry a lot. They can't soothe themselves. However, if a mother picks up a baby and starts to feed the baby, a lot of times that will stop the baby from crying. The baby will, you know, experience eating food, getting milk. That'll feel very good to the baby. It will relax. It'll probably fall asleep afterwards. Uh, That kind of a thing, right? So the, the mother uses her body to soothe the baby. And that goes on for a while, but eventually, you know, as the child gets older and older, you want the child to sleep through the night. The child will wake up in the night and it will be crying. And there, there's this point where parents, mothers and fathers, as anybody who's a parent or a primary caretaker knows that you need to be able to let the baby cry. Uh, that that's a, that's, it, it's hard to let the baby cry, but you have to let the baby cry so that the baby can start to learn to soothe itself because that's a really important thing. And this, it, it, that's one of the first things that this starts with, right? And then eventually it gets to more advanced things like uh, instead of having the mother feed the baby every time that it needs to eat, the baby will start to eat solid foods and start to feed itself. Uh, the baby will eventually get to the point where it starts to talk and express different things that it needs as opposed to depending upon the mother to just sort of like read its mind and give it what it needs. So all that stuff has to happen. But in order for it to happen, Winnicott said that first, there has to be that special bond that I referred to earlier where the mother is so in tuned to the baby and so able to understand what it is that the baby needs and wants and that the mother then gives the baby what it needs, what it wants, that needs to happen. And then after that has happened for a long enough time, in different kids, there's not like a specific day where you need to stop or anything. It's at a certain point that you need to start scaling things back. Uh, Then the infant needs to experience that too so that it gets frustrated that, that it feels negative emotions, that it has these negative uh, kind of unfun experiences and then survives them and learns to develop capacities to manage its own body, manage its own emotions, so on and so forth. So that's a, a big thing of the, that Winnicott thought. Hopefully that's clear to you. Now, you'll probably notice that I'm saying mother a lot in, in this, and uh, I want to be clear about this. I totally and completely believe and understand that... Uh, Mothers are not the only people who are capable of caring for children. There are other people who are not mothers who are very good at caring for children, and I, I get that. Uh, but when Winnicott was, again, I kind of tried to say this. I'll say it again here. Winnicott was thinking this stuff at a time and place in a, in a culture where it was always a mother who was doing this stuff. Or it was very, very, very often the mother who was doing this stuff. And even though other people can do it, Winnicott, I think... I'm I'm kind of intuiting this. He never comes out and explicitly said this, says this, but I think he believes that nobody will care for an infant in the way that the baby's mother will care for the infant. That there's there's something like I said unique and profound, powerful, strong, immense about just the that relationship and that connection that exists there. So now what I want to do is is zoom in 
on a couple of things. So the first thing I want to zoom in on is something that Winnicott would call the fantasy of omnipotence. So when a, a child is born, it it has all, we don't know this. No one can remember what it's like to be a, a freshly born infant. Uh, but Winnicott, being a pediatrician, saw lots of newly born infants. He observed them and observed them interacting with their mothers all the time. And what he theorized, what he imagined was going on in the mind of the infant was this something like this. Uh, the infant experiences a sensation like being cold, being wet, being hungry, and it doesn't like that sensation. So it cries. And then what happens is a parent, probably a mother, uh, hears the baby crying. Uh, and then based off of looking at the baby and knowing the things that they know about what has happened in the baby's life just a short time before. So like, so make this up here. A mother hears a baby crying. She fed the baby not that long ago. Um, the temperature in the building that they're in is pretty good. It doesn't seem like it's really too hot or too cold. So the mother might think something like, maybe the baby needs to be changed, checks the diaper. Oh yes, it looks like the baby does need to be changed. And so then the mother changed the diaper. So Winnicott would see those sorts of very commonplace interactions happening all the time. And he thought that this allowed the infant to believe a really interesting thing. And that was that when it had an, a sensation that it didn't like, it would cry and it would want that sensation to go away. And then it would experience that sensation, something happening and that sensation going away. And this let the infant exist in this kind of like fantasy world. And in that fantasy world, the infant only needed to want something to go away for it to go away. The infant only needed to want something like I want to be fed. And then it cried and it experienced being fed. So basically the infant didn't experience other people as something that were separate from it. it. It experienced everything as just a part of itself. So like right now I'm sitting at a desk, there's a cup of coffee to the left of me. I can take my left arm and I can pick up that coffee and then take a sip of it if I want. That's me using my arm to give myself coffee. Winnicott thought that the infant, if the, the parents are attuned to the infant and what the infant needs, it experiences the parents pretty much the same way that I experience my arm as a part of myself that I can control and make give me things that I want, right? And of course, that's not the way that reality is, but that's, Winnicott thought, that's how the infant experienced things and that that allowed the infant to start to, to continue to develop physically, emotionally, mentally, cognitively, all these different ways. But in order for that development to occur, the infant needed to have this fantasy and needed to believe that this fantasy was the way that things are. Uh, the reason for that is that, you know, if, if the infant has, let's say the infant is born and it doesn't have great parents and it spends a lot of time hungry, wet, soiled diapers that are very uncomfortable, uh, it's too hot, it's too cold, and there's nothing that it can do about those sorts of things, that results in the infant being overwhelmed by adrenaline and cortisol and uh, it, it has a really negative impact on the, the infant's continued physical development, its, its mental development, its cognitive development. Uh, and if you wanted the infant to be able to develop into a healthy person, it was just necessary that the infant have this experience of this fantasy of omnipotence that I just described. Now, the other thing that Winnicott noticed in his interactions with mothers who were attempting to be very attuned to their infants was that there were a lot of mothers who would screw something up with their baby, right? They'd have a baby and 
uh, they something would go wrong, and that would result in them bringing their baby to the doctor, Winnicott, doc, the baby's pediatrician. And they'd say, oh my gosh, the kid has a rash. Um, I think it's because I exposed the kid to something and I, I, I feel so bad about what I've done. Or they would, the baby would be very colicky and the mother wouldn't be able to get the baby to calm down. No matter what she did, it wasn't working. And she'd be saying things like, I, I feel like I'm a terrible mother. And Winnicott thought, no, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. Um, and and he, he counseled actually in a weird way, I think, a lot of mothers. And what he told them is that it, you probably want to be the perfect mother. And because why wouldn't you? But here's the thing. There is no such thing as a perfect mother. That is a fantasy. That doesn't exist. There's nobody who is a mother who is a perfect mother. Everybody who is a mother makes mistakes. Everybody who is a mother screws things up. Everybody who is a mother is sleep deprived and, you know, just trying their best, but sometimes not doing their best. And that that's okay. It's okay to not be perfect because you don't need to be perfect. You just need to be good enough. And he has this concept that he came up with called the good enough mother. What is so great, I think, about this concept is that it says, Winnicott, as a person who was in a position of medical authority, was saying to people, you want something to be perfect. That is not possible. It's still okay to want it. You're not a bad person for wanting to be perfect, and you're probably going to continue to want to be perfect. And you're going to continue to not be perfect. You're going to continue to make mistakes because you're human and that's what humans do. There's no such thing as perfect. It's okay to try and it's okay to then fail to be perfect. You don't need to be perfect. You're going to fail. And then he would take it a step farther. And this is one of the cool, brilliant things about Winnicott. He would then say to the to the mother, as long as your failure is not what we would call like a catastrophic failure, you know, like the you the baby slips into the bath water and drowns, that would be a catastrophic failure, Okay. Um, if it's not a catastrophic failure, uh, for example, like, um, you can't calm your baby down, no matter what you do, you can't calm your baby down. You try everything. It's not working. And then like grandma comes and picks up the baby and it calms down immediately. That is maybe the mother might experience that as a failure, but it is not a catastrophic failure at all. Winnicott said by failing, what's going on here is your, your baby, your child is actually experiencing a negative emotion, but that's okay because it's not life-threatening. It's not super dangerous and that they need to experience these things because they need to get frustrated in order to learn the lesson that even though they get frustrated, frustration comes to an end. And when it does come to an end, everything is okay. So failures are hard. They're not, they're hard on the infant, they're hard on the mother, but they are a necessary part of human development. We need to have them in order to experience emotions and build up a tolerance to the negative emotions. That's, that's necessary. We need to do that. So you want to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to fail. As long as your failures are not catastrophic failures, that's okay. And perhaps even good, ultimately. Not pleasant, but good. I think this is a really, really wonderful concept. However, uh, if there's such a thing as a good enough mother... There's also such a thing as a not good enough mother. And Winnicott talked about that too. I'm, I'm going to try to explain what a not good enough mother was in the eyes of Winnicott. So for him, not good enough mothering or parenting, if you want to use that term, was the kind of parenting 
where the parent consciously or unconsciously responded to their children's behaviors, uh, this, the child spontaneously expressing whatever emotion they happen to be feeling, if the parent responded to those by kind of telling the child, it's not okay for you to feel what you feel, it's not okay for you to behave how you behave, if they did that too much, then that created a, a situation where the child who needs the parents to be okay uh, and needs the parents to be nice to them, where that child would, would turn into an overly compliant person. And Winnicott thought that that was bad. And I, I want to really kind of suss this out for you a little bit more. Imagine the following. Imagine that there's a kid who feels some anxiety for any reason and say that the parent picks up on the kid feeling anxiety. And let's say that that makes the parent then freak out. The parent is like, oh my God, you're anxious? Why are you anxious? What do you need? Do you need a dog? I'll get you a dog. What is it? Why you're, you're still anxious? Do you need something else? What do you need? Do you mean to hug you? I'll hug you. Do it. Please don't be anxious. Please don't be anxious. And then the parent starts crying and they're freaking out. If you're a kid experiencing something like that, this teaches you that if you have anxiety or sadness or whatever kind of difficult emotion, if you having that emotion destabilizes the person upon whom you depend, your parent, that emotion becomes something that you need to separate yourself from. You're not allowed to feel it. Uh, John Bowlby, who was also supervised by Klein, you know, witnessed this kind of stuff too. And he would say that this might have eventually led to what we would call insecure attachment or avoidant attachment. Uh, or actually, Bowlby wouldn't say that because he didn't come up with insecure attachment. Mary Ainsworth did. So Mary Ainsworth would say that. Sorry, correction issued. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, but the important thing here you're getting here is that not good enough mothering or not good enough parenting is the kind of parenting that occurs when somebody tells a child, you can't be the way that you are. You have to be the kind of child that I need you to be so that I can see myself as a good parent. You need to be the kind of kid that uh, is healthy, that does the right things, that shares with other kids, that says please and thank you so on and so forth. Because if you do that, that means that I will be relaxed. That means that I will be stable. And if you don't do that, then I will start to get unstable. I will, I will cry. I will freak out. I will have an adult version of a temper tantrum. If the kid sees that, that convinces the kid that their emotions are toxic and poisonous and bad, and they try to prevent themselves from feeling them. And that's not good. are back and we are going to talk about another Winnicott concept, the concept of the true self and the false self. And this is a concept that I really like, but I also think is incredibly misunderstood and therefore misapplied by a very large number of people. So what is a true self? A true self, according to Winnicott, is the emotional self. It is the part of you that feels whatever you feel. An important thing to know about this true self is that because it is emotional, that means it is not rational, it is not logical, and it oftentimes does not make sense. Our emotions are not logical, they are not rational, and very often they don't make sense. 
but they're what we really feel in whatever instant we're in, right? Uh, we might be angry at somebody and the rational part of ourselves could go, I am overreacting or I kind of don't have a right to be angry about this, but I am, right? The, this is the, the point I'm trying to make about this. The true self is emotional. It wants what it wants. It's kind of wild and unpredictable. You don't know how you're going to feel from one moment to the next to the next. I mean, kind of you do, but at any moment something can happen and if a certain thing happens, you may go from feeling emotionally like stable, normal baseline and whatever to being very emotionally affected. Like if you find out that somebody who you care about a lot is sick or is is dying or has died, that'll have a huge emotional impact on you. If you find out that your romantic partner has been cheating on you, that will probably have a big emotional impact on you. And you can go from being fine to being not fine very quickly um, just because you find something out or because you see something or hear something or, or whatever, right? That's the true self. So quick recap here. True self, emotional, not logical, not rational, oftentimes doesn't make sense. It can change very quickly at any time for kind of any reason, and we don't have a whole lot of control over it. Uh, I do know that in our society, there's this idea that we can't, some people anyways would say, that we can control how we feel. Winnicott would be vehemently opposed to that. He would say, no, 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 you don't. You do not get to control or choose how you feel. That happens. And then it's only after you feel something that you can recognize what you're feeling and label it and then start to make sense of it. But you can't do that before you feel something. Like you can't, no one, according to Winnicott and me, uh, could start their day and say, I am only going to feel things that I want to feel today. I will only feel joy and happiness and I will feel goodwill towards my fellow human beings and none of that bad stuff for me today. No, no jealousy, no irritation, no annoyance, no resentment, none of that. I just won't feel it. No, you cannot make that choice. Things happen to you. As they happen, you respond to them. Part of your response is an emotional response and you don't get to pick what your emotional responses are. And that's your true self. There are some people who you see their true self kind of on full display. They don't make any effort to hide it. They are small children. Small children will uh, display their emotions rather readily, and they don't oftentimes care about the impact that their emotions are having on the lives of the people around them. If you've ever seen a child freaking out in Target, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, drunk people also. Lots of true self comes out when people get drunk. Uh, and chronically mentally ill people. Uh, such as schizophrenics, they they tend to also show you very readily what it is that they're feeling. They don't uh, do the thing that non-schizophrenic people do, which is oftentimes attempt to hide or filter their emotions. They just show them to you. So those are people who you can see their, their full true self. The reason I want to, or not the reason, the thing I'm trying to make clear in describing the true self in this way is to say that the true self is not just like this wonderful good thing that we always want to encourage. You know, just be your true self. That's not what Winnicott would say. Uh, he thought that everybody had a true self and that the true self was very important and that we did need to be in touch with our true self. But he would not say that we should just go be our true self all the time because if we did that, it would be a disaster because our true self cannot actually exist very effectively anyways in a world that we have to share with other people. It would not work. To share a world with other people, to create things like society and civilization and hospitals and schools and technology and all the cool stuff that we like, 
we have to learn how to be able to filter our emotions and how to create what Winnicott called a false self. A false self is the self that complies with all of the different demands that culture and society place upon a person, right? So paying your taxes. I'm assuming that everybody who's listened to this has at some point paid taxes. I'm also going to assume that you probably didn't want to, that there was probably a lot of other things that you would like to take the money and use it for, but you recognize that you got to pay your taxes because the consequence of not paying your taxes is not fun. And so to avoid that consequence, you will give up some money that you want in order to get, in order to avoid the consequence that would come from not paying your taxes, right? Your false self is the part of you that's paying the taxes. That's, that's who's doing that. The false self goes, yes, I understand that my true self, my emotional self is like, I don't want to do this. And even though that is absolutely what we're feeling, we're still going to go, okay, we'll feel that, but we're still going to do this thing. And that applies to a whole bunch of other things as well. Uh, it might apply to if you're getting a review from your employer and they're giving you lots of those air quotes, opportunities for growth. And you think maybe they're being a little bit harsh instead of, you know, freaking out in the review process, you might just kind of go, okay, I'll take this feedback and, uh, you know, just kind of put this process to an end as quickly as I can and try to either find another job or, you know, take it and understand what value there is there and try to correct my behavior or what you'll just try to respond in uh, what we'd call a a mature way, right? Uh, As opposed to having like an emotional meltdown, which is what your true self might want to do in that scenario. So false self, we need a false self. True, True self, is important. Our emotions are important. False self, also very, very useful. The false self is almost like this um, character that we play. It's this armor that we put on in order to protect our true self, our emotional self from all of the different things that we experience. So the false self is not all bad and the true self is not all good. The true self is something that is good, but it's also problematic. The false self is something which is good, but it's also problematic. One of the things that Winnicott makes clear, and this is what I was talking about in the previous section, is we can overdo our false self. We can overly invest in our false self. That happens a lot of times if we have a parenting experience where our parents respond to our true self, our emotions as we're displaying them when we're kids uh, by becoming destabilized. If we experience that, what ends up happening is we, we create a false self which is a little bit too rigid, a little bit too thick, a little bit too much, and we end up losing touch with our emotions. Now, when we lose touch with our true self, it's not like it goes away. It's still there. It's just that it not becomes more unconscious. It becomes more repressed. It becomes something that we have less access to. And Winnicott would say that is a bad thing. What he would encourage people to do is to develop a false self, but not too much of a false self. He would encourage people to have a a true self, to be in touch with their emotions and to be able to express their emotions through their false self not express them in a totally raw, unfiltered way like a child does, but express them in a way that makes sense. I'm going to try to give you an example of this from Winnicott's own life. So one of the things that he did is he worked in a children's hospital, Paddington Green's Children's Hospital. It's still in London today. And he was really good at working with kids. Kids loved Winnicott and Winnicott loved kids. Because of that, at one point, the hospital administrators decided that Winnicott should go to the cancer ward and work with all of the kids who were dying from cancer. And Winnicott said, went to his administrators and he said, I'm going to refuse your request. I'm not going to do that. 
And they said, you have to. And he said, no, I, I could quit. I don't have to work here. There's a lot of places I could go and make money other than here. So if you're going to make me do this, I'm not going to stay. And they were like, why wouldn't you do this? Don't you love kids? And he was like, yes, I do. And that's why I won't do that. He said, if, if I were to do what you're asking, if I were to go on this ward every single day and every single day be exposed to the misery and to the emotions that I would experience if I was around dying children every day, I would start to become callous. I would start to, my, the only sane thing to do would be to shut off my emotions. And he's like, and I need to have access to those emotions in order to connect to these kids. I just can't connect to all of them. I can't do that. I wish that I could in some ways, but I am a limited person. And that means that I cannot help every single kid. I can't. There's only one of me and there's a lot of them. And that, this is sad. This makes me sad. I wish it was otherwise, but I, I, I can only work with a few. If I try to work with too many dying children, it's going to have such a catastrophic effect on me that I'm not going to be able to work with any children. And I'm not prepared to go through that, right? So that was an example of him having his emotions, right? He was, he was very clear about how his true self would react to being around dying children. And he was able to express that verbally through his false self to the hospital administrators in a way that made sense because they didn't fire him. He continued to work there and he continued to work with children, right? That's, that's Winnicott's thing. Uh, when he was working as a psychoanalyst, he was very careful about his caseload. So sometimes he would work with a few, maybe one, possibly two people who were, you know, really, really, really in a bad way. These were people who were on the brink of psychosis or who were potentially suicidal. He wouldn't fill up his entire caseload with people like that, but a few he could do. And that was on purpose. Again, because he, he said, I understand what my emotions are. I know how my true self will respond to very sick people. I can take on a few, but I, I have to know where my limits are because if I try to go beyond my limits, the effect is going to be that I'm going to lose touch with my emotions. I won't be able to be an emotional person. And if I'm not an emotional person, I won't be able to connect with other people's emotions. I, I, I need this. So I hope this makes sense as I describe it because I think this is super important. We have to be able to access our emotions, to be emotional people. We don't want to shut off our emotions. We don't want to divorce ourselves from our emotions. We don't want to be cut off from our emotions. But we have to be able to be responsible with our emotions and be able to use those emotions in ways that make sense as mental health professionals. And that's what Winnicott is advocating for. Have a true self and have enough of a false self through which the true self can interact with the world. which is about capacities. So Winnicott was really interested in helping people develop capacities. 
uh, capacities are, of course, things that we can do. He wanted to increase their capacity to do specific things. And some of the things that he wanted to increase our capacity to do might surprise you. For example, he thought that it was a good idea to increase a person's capacity to feel their emotions. That's what I just spoke about. And not just like the nice emotions, the fun emotions, but like some of the not good emotions too. He felt like if we decided for any reason to avoid or cut ourselves off from emotions, that those emotions wouldn't go away. They would probably find their way into our lives in some kind of weird, messed up way. Uh, he didn't, i.e., he didn't want us to repress our emotions the same way that Freud did not want us to repress our desires. Because if you repress your emotions, if you repress your desires, because emotions are really just, you know, a desire to feel a certain way. If we repress that, it's not going to work. Those, those emotions are going to find a way to be felt. Uh, emotions are a letter to yourself from another part of yourself. It's a good idea to read the letter, I think is what Winnicott would say. The, a couple of emotions that he focused on were our capacities to feel concern for other people and for ourselves, for that matter, right? He thought that that was a really important thing. He also thought that that was a capacity that we tended to diminish, mute, kind of repress, turn down. Uh, and he thought that part of the reason we were doing that is because society made it so that we had to. So, you know, he was living in London. If you're living in London or in any major city, you're going to see homeless people. And after a while, you kind of stop seeing them. And the reason is that if you were seeing them and experiencing them and, ex and experiencing concern for them every time that you saw them, it might create too much pain. And therefore you have to kind of like turn down your concern in order to protect your own mental equilibrium. Uh, that was sort of the same kind of scenario that Winnicott was talking about with the sick kids that I just told you about. So he thought we need to find ways to actually tap into our concern for other people. He didn't, as opposed to, to kind of avoiding it. He thought that that'd be a good thing. Additionally, he felt that our capacity to feel guilt was another thing that we were, as a culture, generally avoiding, that no one liked feeling guilty, and so they would do things to not feel guilty. But he thought that guilt was actually an emotion that clued us into the fact that we were not being as good as we could be to ourselves, to other people, and to the world that we live in. And that if we felt guilty about, you know, burning fossil fuels or about um, buying late things that are made by um, people who are working in terrible conditions, but we buy them because they're cheap, right? If we were to feel guilty about these kinds of things, that that might actually make the world better. So feeling concerned for other people and feeling guilty about what we do and don't do Rather than turn those up, he wanted to, pardon me, rather than turn those down, he wanted to turn those up. Those are things that he thought were really important. Uh, additionally, he would say that when we feel guilty, what that can lead to is a desire to make amends for whatever it is that made us feel guilty. When we feel guilty, when we feel like we've done something wrong, we want to correct that thing. And he thought that, that could lead to us attempting to make better conditions for ourselves and other people to live in. But if we never felt guilty, if we felt like, hey, whatever I'm doing, it's fine, we wouldn't then try to change the conditions. Why would we? If you're if you're comfortable, if you don't feel guilty, if you don't feel bad about anything, why would you try to make anything different? And the world is not a fair place. It wasn't a fair place at the time that Winnicott was alive. It's still not a fair place now. 
And part of the reason that it's not fair is because we're not concerned enough for each other and because we don't feel enough guilt for some of the things that we do and for some of the things that we choose not to do. And I think, and this is my interpretation here, that Winnicott was saying, like, wouldn't the world maybe be nicer if we could be more concerned for each other? Wouldn't the world maybe be nicer if we felt kind of bad about some of the rotten things we do to each other and the rotten things we do to the environment that we all have to live in? And I think he would say, yeah, so maybe we need to feel more concerned and a little bit more guilt. Another capacity he was really interested in increasing was a person's capacity to be alone, which, again, might sound weird. Why would somebody want to be alone? Well, here was Winnicott's idea here, um, and I'm going to try to make this make sense to you. If you've ever had an experience of going back to the place where you live, assuming that you shared that living space with other people, if you've gone back to that living space and no one else has been there, it's just you. You have the place to yourself. You're alone. Sometimes when that happens, people are like, yes. This is great. I don't have anybody else around me. I love this. This is awesome. Winnicott would say that is a capacity to be alone. For him, being able to be alone was being able to be alone and enjoy your solitude. Enjoy that time that you are alone and use it in ways that help you be a good, healthy person. That was for him the capacity to be alone. He thought that the way to develop that capacity is somewhat paradoxically by having people have good relationships with other people. Keeping in mind, he was an object relations thinker. Object relations thinkers are very concerned with relationships. So to, to go back to my example, if you go home, no one's there, you have the place to yourself, you're like, yes, this is awesome. If that goes on for a long time, like longer than you expect it to, and then a lot longer than you expect it to, you're not having fun anymore. Now you're worried. Where are people? Where, why aren't they back? and you stop enjoying the time alone. I, I point that out because Winnicott would say that we can enjoy being alone if we know that it's something that, that will come to an end, if it's something that is not a permanent state, if it's something that will eventually change back into being together with other people. Uh, if you're alone, you want to have a certain amount of alone time. If you have too much alone time, that's a problem. And Winnicott thought that the capacity to be alone was created if we had people who we could reach out to when we had had enough alone time. I've been alone for a few hours, or maybe you've gone away for a weekend. I don't know, whatever the length of time is, but you're good now. And now you want to talk to people again. You can go home and find your people. You can call somebody, text somebody, whatever, and meet up with them. And that that will mean your alone time is now over and you're back into together time. That's what makes it possible for us to enjoy being alone. We have to have those relationships that we can go back to and that we will be accepted back into. If we do not have those relationships, we cannot enjoy being alone. We can force people to be alone. We can't make them like it. For Winnicott, being able to be alone is synonymous with the capacity to be alone and have a good time being alone. The last capacity that I want to talk about is the capacity for creativity. Now, this is one that probably doesn't surprise you. Creativity is usually seen as a good thing by everybody. Uh, Winnicott thought that what we wanted to do is we wanted to really nurture our capacity for creativity. And, you know, most people would agree with that. But here's one of the things that Winnicott saw. He saw that we're kind of good at nurturing creativity in kids, but there's this point in kids' lives where we tell them, in a sense, stop being creative and start getting serious. <laughs> and uh, that's when kind of like play comes to an end. And you don't hear like uh, adults saying to each other, Hey, do you want to come over and play? I mean, they, they don't say that. Kids say that. Adults don't say that. Teenagers probably don't say that even. 
And Winnicott thought that that creativity was actually another way of saying an ability to be playful. And being playful for him was the ability to make things up and try things out and see how they worked and see how they didn't work and to accept the things that worked well and to kind of try things that didn't work well, realize they didn't work well, and then go, eh, I'm not going to do that one again. He thought that that was good. He saw kids, you know, um, playing games. There's a, a comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes. Many of you are probably familiar with it. In that comic strip, there was this game that Calvin made up called Calvin Ball. The way that you played Calvin Ball always changed. He just like was always changing the rules all the time. Winnicott thought that that was a great thing, that if you could play Calvin Ball, you could you could change the rules, you could tr- change the game, you could try it different ways and see how it worked and you weren't constrained by the rules. They weren't like demands that you needed to comply with all the time, no matter what. Uh, you could you could mess with them a little bit. And he thought that, that was a great thing. Uh, one of the ways that he would notice if kids had the capacity for creativity was if they created something called a transitional object. A transitional object for a kid might be like a specific toy or blanket, stuffed animal or something like that. And for the the kid, that stuffed animal, he'll, they, they might talk to it. They might play with it more than their other stuffed animals. They have a special relationship with it. That might be the stuffed animal they want when they're feeling really, if they bumped their head or scraped their knee and they're hurt and they want their special toy. Uh, Winnicott thought that those transitional objects were these things that were like uh, these imaginary special objects that a kid created and then made use of, right? The kid could, could imbue something with like almost special magical qualities, even though it was just a regular mundane object that wasn't actually special, but to the kid, it was special in their imagination. It was special in their emotional world. It was special because they'd created it and turned it into something that was special. Winnicott thought that that was always a really good thing. Um, and that's where I think I'm going to stop. Actually, I've talked, this podcast lecture has been longer than I expected, but I like talking about Winnicott. So it's not really a surprise to me. Uh, last thing I'll tell you about him. I just talked about transitional objects. He thought that it was good that kids could create transitional objects that they could then use to comfort themselves and uh, make their time in the world a little bit easier. He also believed that patients should be able to use their analysts or their therapists as transitional objects. One of the things that Winnicott said is the best thing you can do for your patient is allow them to make use of you, i.e. allow them to develop a transference and to make you into what they need you to be. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to encourage that transference forever and ever, no matter what. Eventually, you're probably, that transference is going to probably be revealed to be more of a fantasy than a reality. But he thought that that was okay, that, that you allow patients to turn you into the type of therapist that they need you to be and that you kind of roll with that. That was one of his ideas. And uh, anyways, that's, there's so much more I could say. I feel like I haven't said enough, even though this has been a long podcast lecture. Hopefully, if you've listened to this and you liked it, You'll come to class with comments, with questions, with concerns, and all those sorts of things. And you'll tell me what those comments and concerns and questions are, and I will attempt to address them or answer them in some way. Till then, please, please, please make glorious mistakes. Don't let that man keep you down. And uh, remember, false self, okay, just not too much. Talk to you soon.